1: Coming up on this week's Science Revolution, Dr. Jason Hill with the University of Minnesota says cutting greenhouse gases from food production is urgent and that our food systems may be the dark horse of climate change. Investigative journalist Catherine Eban drops by on her new book, Bottle of Lies, the inside story of the generic drug boom. Mari Margill with the Center for Democratic and Environmental Rights will be telling us about the huge win in Florida for the rights of nature. Stay tuned. line with us is Dr. Jason Hill, Professor of Bioproducts and Biosystems Engineering at the University of Minnesota. He's the uh, senior author of a recent study on food production and greenhouse gases that's absolutely fascinating. Twitter handle J.D. Hill. Jason Hill, Dr. Jason Hill, welcome to the program. Tell us about greenhouse gases. I think most people think when you say greenhouse gases, they think tailpipe emissions or uh, oil fired or coal fired power plants. But there's another dimension to this.
2: Thank you for having me on your show. When we typically think of greenhouse gas emissions and climate change, we think of fossil fuels, coal, oil, natural gas. But there's another major source, and that's uh, our food system, land, use of fertilizers. All those things are major contributors to climate change.
1: Now, what does major mean? How do you quantify that?
2: Even if we were to stop using fossil fuels today, By about 2050, we will have exceeded the Paris Agreement's target of limiting global temperature change to 1.5 degrees Celsius or higher, and by the end of the century, going two degrees. So it's a large contributor to our overall... Entirely
1: because of our food production?
2: entirely because of our food production. We don't often stop to think about the carbon footprint of the things we eat as a So we're not whole, talking about world.
1: we're not talking about the trucks that deliver the food to market or anything because if we were to electrify our entire transportation system, all that stuff goes away in terms of carbon emissions. You're talking about the way that we are treating our soil and the way that we are I'm assuming growing vegetables and dealing with livestock. Uh, How do we break those things out and what do we need to do? Yeah, exactly
2: right. You know, in fact, transportation is only a small part of the emissions from the global food system. It's what happens on the land. It's converting land for production. It's plowing it, which releases soil carbon. It's using fertilizers that release nitrous oxide that's 300 times as damaging as carbon dioxide pound per pound for climate change. It's ruminant animals that release large amounts of methane. So all that
1: contributes to this problem. Back in the day, Ronald Reagan, as I recall, maybe it was a more recent Republican, but I thought it was Reagan was talking about cow farts and how, you know, everybody's all upset about cow farts and he made jokes about it and stuff like that. But really, you're talking about cow farts here, right? It's more the burps, actually, um, that's
2: responsible. So animal agriculture has a large carbon footprint, and that's because of emissions of methane from animals themselves, as well as emissions of carbon dioxide and nitrous oxide that come from crop production, which then is animal feed.
1: Right. You know, to produce a pound of beef, we have to produce how many pounds of vegetable matter to feed that that cow from birth to to slaughter?
2: Mm -hmm. One way to think about it is for every pound of protein that you get from a cow, it takes about 20 pounds of vegetable protein to produce that.
1: Wow. And so that's 20 times the emissions. And not only that, the animal proteins increase your risk of heart disease and stroke and and premature aging and all kinds of things, or at least large scale consumption of them. So what do we do? I mean, I've read papers suggesting that one of the big problems with ruminant animals, which is principally cows, is that they're designed to eat grass and that when they eat grass, they don't burp and fart so much. But when they eat grains, which causes them to get fatter faster, they do. It changes the metabolism or it changes the microbiome and changes the way that they digest things. Is it that kind of a tweak or is it that we need to cut back on animal agriculture or is that we need to do it a different way? I mean, how do we get our hands around this, Dr. Jason Hill?
2: So, you know, what we did in this paper is we looked at sort of five, what we think of as as reasonable changes in the global food system that could reduce emissions. And we looked at eating more plant-rich diets, not plant-only diets necessarily, but plant-rich diets, or eating the right number of calories, a healthy number of calories. Increasing agricultural yields through, say, better practices, reducing the amount of waste that we have in production and and in consumption of food, and also producing crops and animals more efficiently. And when you do all those things, you can reduce greenhouse gas emissions tremendously. So there are things that we can do all across the food system, and collectively, those emissions could drop dramatically if we make those changes here in the U.S. and abroad.
1: You know, the thing that boggles my mind, there was somebody on TV today talking about, it was a member of Congress from Ohio, and he was talking about how he's opposed to the Green New Deal because we need coal and gas and natural gas and and oil power, you know, et cetera, et cetera. And I'm like... Really? Driving an electric car is a really great thing. Getting power from renewable sources we do here in Portland, you know, comes from the Columbia River. The great thing. It's non-carbon. It's like electric cars are so much cooler than regular cars. In every aspect, I see for, at the level of human quality of life, decarbonizing our atmosphere, we get tens of thousands, perhaps, I you mean, know, probably millions of people die every year from air pollution associated with these things, cancers and whatnot. You've got, you know, lower risk of heart disease and whatnot from eating a diet that's heavy on plants rather than heavy on meat. I get it that there are industries that have vested interests in keeping things the way they are. But is there any downside to your prescriptions? Is, is it going to cause, you know, outside of those people who are in those particular industries who may have to find basically a new job or another way to make a living or, or simply make their living in a slightly different way doing the same thing that they're doing right now, producing food. Is there any big downside to this? No, I actually like to look more at the upsides because if we
2: do these things, there are all sorts of other societal benefits for us. Eating plant-rich diets is good for our health. And so think of all the all the things that we try to do to improve our health. Well, that's one thing that, that we know has good uh, effects. Uh, what about the other environmental impacts of decarbonizing and wasting less and using land more efficiently and such. Cleaner water, cleaner air, those sorts of things. There are all these co-benefits of making these changes. And so for whatever reason we make them, if we move in these directions we're likely to have a much better
1: outcome. We're talking with Dr. Jason Hill, professor of bioproducts and biosystems engineering at the University of Minnesota and the author, or one of the authors of this recent study on food production and greenhouse gases. Is there anybody? Is there? Are there organizations out there? Who's pushing for this kind of change has there been a political hook to it yet certain things in the in the news recently has done
2: the US officially withdrew from the Paris Agreement and so that is that is moving more toward the goals of that Paris Agreement whoever is working toward that is working toward a good outcome because that outcome is one in which the effects of climate change can be reduced and those effects that affect us all can be shared by the whole world
1: yeah, and I think the two leading causes of death in the United States are heart disease and cancer, both of which would be reduced by people going to a more of a plant-based diet. President-elect Biden has said that he's going to re-sign the, the Paris Agreement, which is a good thing. Dr. Jason Hill, thanks for dropping by. It's great talking with you. Thank you. You're welcome. Fascinating stuff. Absolutely fascinating stuff. Tweet him at J.D. Hill. Margie Margill is on the line with us. She's the executive director of the Center for Democratic and Environmental Rights and the program manager for the CDER's International Center for the Rights of Nature, Center F-O-R, org F-O-R, for is the website. The Twitter handle is Rights of Nature. Thank you, Tom. Tell us about this victory down in Florida.
3: It was a big victory on election night. The people of Orange County, Florida, voted by almost 90 percent to recognize the legal rights of rivers and other waterways in the county. And it's the first rights of nature law anywhere in the state of Florida. And with over 1.4 million people, the county is now the largest place in the United States with a rights of nature law in place. So a big deal for Florida and a big deal, of course, for rivers there.
1: In the abstract, this sounds great. What does it mean?
3: It means that we're seeing a really fundamental shift occurring in places like Florida, as you may know, and your listeners may know. Florida has seen just the red tides in the Gulf, they've seen algae blooms across rivers and other waterways, they've seen destruction of the Everglades, so water is everything in Florida, and the devastation that occurs because of industrial human activity has just made things worse and worse and worse, and people on the ground are just tired of waiting for their state government, the federal government, to save them, and have finally decided it's time to take this action ourselves, and so the people of Orange County are the first to go forward to say we're going to make a really fundamental shift in how we govern ourselves toward nature and, in fact, how we treat nature itself under the law by recognizing that nature has even the most basic right to exist. And in Orange County now, rivers not only have the right to exist, they have the right to flow, to be protected against pollution, and to maintain a healthy ecosystem.
1: Most of what you described, uh, Mari, in terms of the red tide and all these other things, We're in the context of the harm that is done to human beings by having a polluted environment or a a destroyed environment. Up until recently, we've always dealt with that by saying that people have the right to have fresh water. People have the right to breathe clean air and therefore we're going to regulate the so-called right of polluters to pollute and things like that and developers to develop. Coming at it from the point of view of nature has a right, is a very, very different thing. Can you talk a little bit about the differences between those two approaches, both legally, perhaps even constitutionally? Because you know, when the republic was founded, there was no consideration for the environment. It seemed limitless. And so it doesn't appear in our constitution or anywhere else in our founding documents. Legally, constitutionally, and also practically. There is a
3: growing recognition that our human right to a healthy environment, or in this case, our human right to clean water, it doesn't have a lot beneath it if water itself doesn't have the right to be healthy. So the Orange County law and what we see in rights of nature laws across the United States, Within Ecuador's constitution, which was the first to constitutionally enshrine legal rights of nature or Pachamama, the Orange County law in Florida contains both the rights of waterways, but also the human right to clean water putting those two things together, recognizing that we are dependent on these ecosystems to provide this clean water, but they can't do that unless they have the highest form of legal protection, which is the recognition of legal rights. So it's a marrying of those two ideas together within the law, but also, I think, as you say, like within our culture, a recognition that we should have human right to a healthy environment, but we don't have that in a meaningful way. Even though it's in certain statutes, certain state constitutions, but here you have it under fed. It's uh, you know it's protected because the right of water itself is being protected here in Orange County, and it's much like we saw in other places. So we've done a lot of work in India to recognize rights of the Ganges River, Mother Ganga, as they call it, and the campaign says that. Ganga's rights are our rights, meaning we are the water, the water is us. That concept that we need to protect both rights to ensure both are protected.
1: So if the water has a right and the water can't speak or write legislation or vote, then there has to be some intermediary who is expressing that right. And I'm guessing that the guy who owns the coal mine upstream from you on the river is uh, perfectly willing to speak on behalf of the river, as are you. I mean, how does that play out?
3: It's much like when we think about, like, a child who has certain rights but is unable to express them and, and represent themselves in court. They need to have a guardian or somebody who can essentially stand in the shoes of the child to represent the child's interests the child's rights and so we're seeing there's something very similar with nature you're right you know a river can't literally speak in a court of law but somebody can stand in the shoes of that river to represent the river's rights itself, not the right of the person speaking on its behalf, but the right of the river itself or other ecosystem. And, of course, we've seen this play out in places like Ecuador, where they've had their constitution in place for over a decade. You have people going into court in the name of an ecosystem or in the species to represent the interest of that species to defend and enforce their rights. And it's playing out much like it does, like under child negligence statutes here in the U.S., so we have parallels in the law when somebody's unable to speak for themselves, somebody can do so on their behalf and it's much the same for nature.
1: I guess where I'm where I'm trying to get to with this is if what we're doing is basically the same thing as an attorney ad litem, the attorney who represents a child's interest in court. If the river is going to have somebody like that. Because this is a very new area of law we have not yet seen an assault in the context of the rights of nature. We've seen people saying, "Oh, there is no right of nature." But not hey, I represent the right of nature and I disagree with you on how nature wants to be represented. What happens when one attorney says, I'm here to represent the rights of nature and that river doesn't really care if it has three-tenths of a percent arsenic in it. It doesn't matter. It's not a big deal to that river. The river still flows just fine, thank you very much. And then the other lawyer says, no, I'm here to represent the rights of the river and the river does worry about all that arsenic.
3: Well, these laws are recognizing very specific rights of an ecosystem or species or nature on the whole. So a right to flow, a right not to be polluted, and those things are being defined in the laws. And, of course, this question of can nature have rights, that question has now been answered because we have nations that have said yes nature has rights and these are the rights that they have and so there's no longer a question of can it happen the question now is how do we actually innovate the law to ensure it is and that we fulfill those legal rights the promise of those rights that these laws hold so in places like orange county you have the people who voted for this with over you know 89 percent of the vote saying you know what The rivers have a right to flow. They have a right not to be polluted, as defined already within Florida statute. They have a right to maintain a healthy ecosystem. And much like with other legal rights, often it does rely on the courts to ultimately help us interpret what is the full extent of those rights. And I think we'll, of course, see something similar here with the rights of nature. We've seen this before in the law. It happens as the body of legal rights gets expanded from time to time. So it's much the same with rights of nature.
1: Uh, Mari Margill, the Executive Director of the Center for Democratic and Environmental Rights and, and the Program Manager of CDER's International Center for the Rights of Nature. center dot for, F-O-R, org is the website. Rights of Nature, the Twitter handle. Mari, thank you so much for dropping by. Thanks, Tom. Sponsoring the interview this week is. So those of you watching on Free Speech TV under Dish or Direct or on YouTube on the internet or whatever will notice that over my uh, right shoulder is a book, Bottle of Lies, The Inside Story of the Generic Drug Boom, which I received three or four days ago. I confess I have not read the entire book yet, but what I have read so shocked me and so alarmed me that I I, uh, called up Sean and said, we've got to get the author of this book on and talk about this. This is an amazing book. Bottle of Lies is the book. Catherine Eban is the author, contributor to Vanity Fair and an Andrew Carnegie Fellow, the author of two books. This is her latest, an investigative journalist. Catherine, welcome to the program. I'm so glad to have you with us. Thank you for joining us today. It's my pleasure to be here.
0: Thanks for having me.
1: You have written a masterpiece and chapter after chapter of adventure stories and the stories of this guy going through the factories in China and India, trying to figure out what's going on with generic drugs. But let's start with the biggest picture. I know two people, one person situation just came up in conversation over the last five years or so one person was on a blood pressure medication when they got changed to the generic version of the exact same drug found that their blood pressure one day would be higher than normal the next day would be lower than normal it seemed to be all over the place and they couldn't figure out why they went to their doctor and he said oh you must have changed your diet or you must be under stress the second person that i personally know is somebody who was taking a regular medication that had basically no taste they would just pop the pill in their mouth It was a dissolvable you know it wasn't designed to dissolve Yeah. But they would taste it. They got a generic version and suddenly it tasted so bitter they could they could, they could could hardly take the pill. We're saying to me, this has got to be a different drug. But my doctor insists it's the same thing. What is the deal? Why is this happening? <laughs> and, and are these anomalies? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, well, unfortunately, they're
0: not anomalies. And it was exactly stories like this that led me to start reporting and digging into this very question, which is, What is wrong, if anything, with generic drugs? Are they carbon copies of brand-name drugs like the FDA insists? Or are they a version and a very wide-ranging version that sometimes have contaminants, particulates, carcinogens, or maybe are not bioequivalent? And what I uncovered after 10 years of reporting is The majority of these drugs are made overseas in India and China in poorly regulated manufacturing plants where there is often endemic fraud, all kinds of shenanigans with the quality data. The drugs are often not what they're purported to be. The FDA is announcing its inspections overseas two months in advance. The companies go in and falsify data fake their results. The consequence for American patients is that we are often getting really substandard generics, and they're different even from one manufacturer of generics to the next. So, you know, if you as a consumer go to the pharmacy for your monthly medication and you're switched to a different manufacturer, that could really have a different impact on you physically.
1: How can it be that if somebody is taking a drug, Ritalin, let's say, I don't know, yeah. you know, I, I've written about attention deficit disorder, so somebody's taking Ritalin, that's methylphenidate, we know what that drug is, we know what the chemical composition, the structure of it is, you can look it up on Wikipedia and see the molecule. So how is it that if the methylphenidate is actually, or the Ritalin is actually made in one of these factories in China or India that you so brilliantly documented, do everything they can to keep U.S. inspectors out, Yeah. why would it not still be methylphenidate? Is it that the law allows them to come up with 2, 3-methylphenidate, you know, a slightly different version because, gee, it's biologically similar, but it's cheaper to make? What's, how does that work? Okay, so let's take two scenarios, okay? One
0: scenario is let's assume, for argument's sake, that the system works exactly as it's supposed to, okay? The generic drug company will use the same molecule, but their version can be quite different in terms of the percentage of drug that is absorbed into the blood, it, it has to be no more than 25% above or 20% below the absorption into the blood of the brand name drug. That's a big difference. The, wow. time, release mecha- the time release mechanism can be different. The excipients or additional ingredients can be different, right? And then, does the FDA test the drug when, before they approve it? No, they don't test it. What they do is they review company data, And they inspect manufacturing plants. And in the case of the overseas plants, they give them months of advance notice. Okay? So Uh if everything's working as planned, you already have the potential for a lot of difference. Now, let's talk about what I actually uncovered that is going on in these plants. Let's say the generic drug company... They weren't given the recipe by the brand name company. They had to reverse engineer it in their lab, right? They took a sample, they broke it down, they figured out a way to make it. Now let's say their formulation, the drug doesn't dissolve properly. Let's say it becomes unstable after sitting there on a shelf for 12 months. And let's say impurities in the drug continue to rise as it sits there on the shelf becoming unstable. In those sorts of circumstances, they can't get the drug approved by the FDA. So what do they do? Let's say they fake the data, right? They conceal those problems from the and FDA. And you found company been, after
1: company that's actually doing that. It's not, let's say they do it. They're correct. actually doing it.
0: They're actually doing it. So I obtained thousands of pages of company documents. I spoke to numerous whistleblowers. I tracked FDA investigations And I, you know, my book tells the story, among other things, of an FDA investigator who figured out companies were doing this because he went into the plants and looked inside their computer systems. And he found evidence that they're pre-testing their drugs to figure out if they'll pass, and then manipulating the test parameters and giving that data to the FDA to make everything look okay. And I've also been able to document, like, the real harm to patients of this. I mean, you've got heart transplant patients who are switched to a generic immunosuppressant made in India, and they suffered organ rejection. You know, or millions of patients in this country who were taking generic uh, blood pressure medication, Valsartan and Losartan, and it turned out that the active ingredients, which were made in India and China, had a carcinogen in it called NDMA. If any of your listeners had gotten generic Lipitor when it first came on the market and they celebrated because it was now cheaper, that generic Lipitor was made by an Indian company called Rambaxi, and it turned out to have glass particles in it. All had to be recalled. You know, so this is really a widespread issue throughout the industry.
1: Yeah. Is anybody in Congress working on this?
0: yes the good news is people are working on it but the bad news is you know we're in the middle of this incredible health crisis that's made everything harder so yeah who knows when we'll solve it
1: Yeah. Well, let me just tell everybody who is listening to my voice, this is a book you need to read. And this is not some weird. I mean, sometimes I tell people about, you know, this with generics and they go, oh, you must be an anti-vaxxer. No, this is not some weird conspiracy. This is solid reporting. Bottle of Lies is the book. Catherine Eban, E-B-A-N is the author. Catherine, thank you for being with us today.
0: Yeah, thank you so much. It's a pleasure.